turning then to these uh, great verses of scripture in Isaiah 53, like I said, very familiar to us, uh, at least I hope they are, very famous, very well-known verses of scripture regarding the prophecy of the coming and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that that would achieve. So we've looked at these two verses, we've looked at all the verses previously, but we're just going to be looking at a few things here this evening. Behold my servant, this is what we're looking at, this great servant who we should gaze upon, we should cast our attention and our eyes, not only our eyes, but our hearts, everything about us should be cast upon him. We should be looking, we should be beholding, gazing upon him in all his beauty. Take a moment then to consider the Lamb of God who came from a place of incomprehensible glory. Think about it. The Lamb of God who came from a place of incomprehensible glory, a place of majesty, a place of such honour and hierarchy, a place of power. He came down from that place. He came down from heaven. How that can be described by the man standing before you this evening is impossible. I cannot describe to you the glory of heaven. I cannot describe to you the glory that is between the Godhead as it was and as it is today. I can't describe it to you. Even Paul, when we look at Paul, the inspired apostle of Jesus Christ, he speaks of a man, doesn't he? He says, I once knew a man. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but he was caught up into the third heaven. He is obviously, of course, speaking of his own experience, but he speaks of himself in the third person because he's having trouble with people who are accusing him of boasting. So he wants to maintain the fact that he is a true apostle, that he has the qualifications and he has the revelations from Christ himself, but he doesn't want to make it appear as though he's a man of boasting in his own experiences. So he speaks of it in the third person. But even this apostle, even, even this man of extraordinary knowledge of Christ, he knew him. He knew the Lord Jesus Christ so well. But he could only say that he heard unspeakable words which man is not permitted to speak. That was his description of what he saw or what he heard in heaven. It didn't tell you anything about what he saw, in fact. And whatever he heard, he says, it's indescribable. I, I cannot speak that to anyone. It's forbidden me even to speak. One day then, on that day when we see him, when he, when he comes and he takes us to himself as his people, when we are changed in the twinkling of an eye, taking off that corruptible and putting on the incorruptible, we shall see him as he is and we shall know as we are known. That day we will begin an eternity of seeing the glory of God unfold before our eyes. And I say begin, because we don't enter into glory and suddenly know the entirety of the glory of God. 
because it's unending. There is no end to the glory and the power and the wisdom and the might. and the, uh, He's incomprehensible. We will begin. We've only just begun now to know the glories of God. There is such magnitude that at this present time, as the scripture says, as Paul says, we see only through a glass darkly. All we see. When Jesus prays to his father in that great prayer of John 17, he prays that his father would glorify him with the glory he had with the father before the world was. Now, when we read that, when we think about that, we ought never to think or assume that Christ somehow lost some of his glory in his incarnation. He's not saying, Lord, I've, when I came to be a man, I lost some of it. Now, now I'm dying and coming back to you. Can I have it back? It's not what he's saying. Jesus Christ is God, essentially and perfectly. He cannot become greater and he cannot decline or decrease in any way, shape or form. And Paul declares in Philippians 2 verse 8 that Christ, he humbled himself. That's what he said, didn't he? That he, he humbled himself, or in other words, he emptied himself. Now, it says that, this is what Barnes said, he said, he laid aside for a time the exact, uh, sorry, the eternal, external, I can't read my own writing, he laid aside for a time the external aspect of honour and consented to become despised, to assume the form of a servant. He laid it aside. Didn't lose it. He didn't, as some people have wrongly preached, take off or somehow become not God and, and, and cast aside his deity. That's, that's not right. That's not true. He just laid aside the privileges of his glory. So these disciples of his, they spent over three years with Jesus as the Son of Man. One who had emptied himself and veiled his glory. He veiled it. It wasn't gone, but it was masked. It was hidden, if you like. So even with his glory veiled, even with that kind of covering on, that he is the Christ himself was still revealed to them. They still saw who he was. They still saw, in part, his glory. When, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? What did Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Nathaniel said the same. They saw also a glimpse of his glory, you remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he began to glow and his clothes were whiter than even the most bleached clothes. They saw a very small glimpse. They were amazed when they saw it. They just kind of went all crazy a little bit. Peter was trying to make booths for, for Elijah and for Moses and for Jesus. Can't begin to imagine being in the presence of his fullness on that most awaited four of days. It's going to be such a wonderful experience. And it's only going to get better from that day on when we're in glory. No decline. 
So this person who we've spoken of, this, this person who, who left the Godhead, if you like, who left heaven, <coughs> became a man, left that glory, laid aside his privileges. This is the person of whom Isaiah speaks. This is the one who was taken, who was imprisoned, the one who was speedily judged in an unorthodox and underhanded manner. He wasn't judged correctly. He was taken unlawfully. He was stricken in his treatment and death, as well as by the weight of sin that he carried. He went to the grave alongside wicked men and was by most people numbered as a wicked man himself. He was amongst the transgressors. That's what people thought of him. But he was, of course, also honoured that he had the tomb of a rich man, a tomb that was newly hewn out, never used, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. His life was lived perfectly before God, and he was tempted in all ways as are we, yet without sin. He himself stated in, in Matthew chapter 11, at the end, that he is meek and lowly of heart, gentle, full of compassion. He did no violence to anyone, as we see in the context of Isaiah 53 that we're looking at. He spoke in truth. He spoke in love. He is the truth, as we mentioned this morning. He is love. And yet, for all this, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. I don't know if you've really thought about that before. When you read that, it's kind of shocking. People say, who killed him? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Was it us? Well, it says here that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The sense of the word pleased, when you, when you look at this word pleased, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The sense of this is to be well pleased. You remember what, what the Father says from heaven when Jesus is baptized, as well as other times when the voice comes from heaven. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's the same kind of saying, it's the same feeling that, it, that God was well pleased to bruise him. Let me remind you of what Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says as well. It says, as I live, this is God speaking, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Isn't that an interesting contrast? It pleased the Lord to bruise his son. He finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and yet he was well pleased to bruise his perfect, sinless one. The only beloved son. I mean, some of us, some people hearing that might think, this is madness. It's madness. That he, he doesn't find pleasure in the death of the wicked, and yet it pleased him to bruise his own son. And let's look a little further. God had declared centuries earlier in his prophetic statement to Adam and Eve that the heel of her offspring would be bruised by the serpent, but that he would also crush the head of the serpent underfoot. 
The wages of sin is death, as we know, and we've read that in Romans. A man must die. For God is a just and righteous God. Sin is heinous, if that's the right word, if that's the right way of saying it. Heinous, heinous, heinous. Thanks, Ken. Heinous to him. It's disgraceful, it's disgusting, he can't look upon it. And it has to be punished. He is a righteous judge. He is a just judge. But God so loved the world that a way must be made both to punish sin and serve justice at the same time. Mankind, they're fallen, they're polluted, spotted and stained with sin at enmity or enemies of God. They're helpless. We were helpless. Unable to help and to save ourselves. Deserving only of judgment. That's where we stood. And man cannot be justified by his own works. No way. Sacrifice must be made. Because he's dead and tres trespasses and sin. And one who is dead cannot be a living sacrifice. It's impossible. There's no way that man can pay the price for his own sin. His own work is not worthy enough. He is full of sin himself. So a sacrifice must be made on their behalf. But who? Who is innocent? Who is sinless? Who is spotless and blameless and can stand as a surety for his people? There's only one. The Son, tabernacled in the flesh of humanity. The God-man. Very God and very man, which we sing and speak of at Christmas time. No, very God and very man. This man can stand in the gap. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Romans 5, 18 through 21 says, Therefore, as through one man's offence, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification to life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that offence might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Lord was pleased. He was well pleased with his sufferings. Not because he has delight in the sufferings of innocence. Not because the sufferer was in any sense guilty or ill-deserving. And not because he was at any time displeased or dissatisfied with what the mediator did or taught. But it was, as Albert Barnes says, number one, because the Messiah had voluntarily submitted himself to those sorrows which were necessary to show the evil of sin. He was pleased by that. And in view of the great object to be gained, the eternal redemption of his people, 
He was pleased that he would subject himself to so great sorrows to save them. He was pleased with the end in view and with all that was necessary in order that that end might be secured. Secondly, he was pleased because these sufferings would tend to illustrate the divine perfections and show the justice and mercy of God. The gift of a saviour such as he was, evinced boundless benevolence. His sufferings on behalf of the guilty showed the holiness of his nature and law and all demonstrated that he was at the same time disposed to save and yet resolved that no one should be saved by dishonouring his law or without expiation for the evil which he had done by sin. And thirdly, because these sorrows would result in the pardon and recovery of an innumerable multitude of lost sinners and in their eternal happiness and salvation. The whole work was one of benevolence and Yahweh was pleased with it as a work of pure and disinterested love. Pleased him to bruise him for his sake of his people. But he says not only that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, but it says specifically he has put him to grief. It was the Lord, it was the Father, it was God that put his son to grief. In Revelation 13, 8, it says the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. Acts 2.23 says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Ephesians 1, 3-7 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise and the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And then lastly, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What these verses show us is that we are adopted sons of God through Christ and that it has always been God's plan from the foundation of the world to save his people before the foundation of the earth. In that great will and counsel of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the great triune God. In that council, before anything was created, when there was only Father, Son, and Spirit, and nothing else, Jesus was sent. That was the plan. Given over into the hands of wicked men, as we read in Acts 
treated shamefully, became the surety for his people in silence, and was led to the slaughter to save his people from their sin. All this was planned before the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God slain before the foundation in the, of the world. We know for, for our sense of looking on that that wasn't in actuality as far as we see. That God doesn't live in time, he lives in eternity. And so the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. And yet it played out in our time and he was crucified. God has put him to grief. God has subjected him to such sorrows and the Son himself has borne our griefs and sickness that he might take captivity captive, that he might destroy the last enemy, which is death. And because of that, he brings abundant life to all who trust in him. Salvation is of the Lord. The scripture says he has done it. He's done it. So we've, we've learned, haven't we, so far in this chapter that we've been looking at, Christ was despised and rejected so that we would be loved and accepted. He became a man of sorrows and a man of griefs that we may be people who can rejoice. He was stricken with our load of grief that our burden may be made light. The chastisement, the wounds, the afflictions in body and mind that should be rightfully ours were laid upon him. He was oppressed that we may be made free. God was pleased to bruise him that we may be healed. Scripture says, doesn't it, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Everything, there's a phrase, isn't there, about, I think it's to do with court cases or justice, and they say they're going to throw the book at you. Everything that the book could throw at us was deserved. We should have the book thrown at us. And I don't know about you, but I, I wonder, sometimes if I really view myself as that bad a person, or do I think, not really, not really do anything that warrants such a, a justice from God. But the scripture is very clear. You've broken one law, broke them all. Every single last one. We're guilty before God. But he, so great that he is, laid down his life for his friends. And bore the whole judgment. He had the book thrown at him so that we could go free. Question in Hebrews, it says, how can we neglect so great a salvation? It is a wonder, isn't it, that so many people neglect this salvation? It is a wonder 
The people are so blind. That's because they don't see their sin. They don't see God. They don't see that they deserve justice. They don't that they deserve punishment. They don't see it. They don't see that they, they are so bad, so fallen from grace, so sinful, so desperately in need of a saviour. Because they just can't see with blindness. Let me just leave you with some words from Peter. He says this, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Only to the good and gentle, sorry, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What a great scripture to end on. That we are commended by God to live and to be an example, just like he was. So when we read that scripture that says, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends, hadn't we also ought to be those who lay down our lives for one another? For he is our example, and he has bore our griefs. It pleased the Lord to bruise him so that you could be made well. By your stripes, you're healed. That's not talking about your body. There's so many people misinterpret. It's not talking about the fact that you can go to God and every disease of sickness and cold and flu and anything it is that you've got, it will be delivered from. It's not talking about that. It's talking about being made whole. Being made whole. And if you're in Christ this evening, you stand in perfect wholeness before the Holy God. And he views you as he views his own son. That is hard for us to think about, isn't it? Knowing our own minds and our own hearts that we still sin. Those that say they don't sin, they're liars, as it says in 1 John. And this is a sweet thing to know, that before this great bar of God, we stand and we'll stand alone. And when we stand there, who's it going to see? It's going to see that doorposts and the lintel is painted with the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you as we read these words that please the Lord to bruise him. That as we look into this, we don't see that there is some kind of strange masochistic attitude. It pleased you because the great obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ to take upon himself the sins of the world pleased you to put upon him our sin so that myriads of people 
your people may be saved. Lord, you gave your son a gift, a gift of people whose names are written in his book. And he has given his life to save them when he saves everyone. Lord, we give you thanks then that we can be in that book tonight. And I do pray, Father, that every heart that is in that book and knows it will rejoice as we pray this very second. And for any of us, Lord, tonight, any of us, man, woman, and child here tonight who does not know Christ, who is not at this present time in that book, as it were, I pray, O oh God, that you would bring them to repentance, give them the gift of faith, cause them to turn away from sin and turn to the living God through Christ Jesus, to put their trust in his shed blood on the cross and his resurrection life. Lord, save, we pray. Grant us the gift of life and grant us then as we go from this place to live our lives that you've given us, Lord. And may it be that we be ready, that we be ready as we look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we be ready to be bruised for his sake. That many others may receive their healing. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.